if you're even, and this is for people looking at being like an investor relations role, it's who are your relationships? Because I was thinking of like, hey, do I want a syndicator or do I want a guy who has the relationships to the single check writers? And for me, it was the single check writers more or less than the syndication. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right. On today's show, we have Andrew Dunn. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me, Drew. Andrew is a managing partner at VAC Development, which is an asset class agnostic real estate investment group that focuses really more on yield than asset allocation. And Andrew primarily runs the acquisitions, capitalization, and business plan execution for the firm. And then they operate primarily in the Southwest and Mountain West markets. So awesome to have you here today, Andrew. Dude, really happy to be on, man. Been looking forward to this discussion a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, we had a good conversation. Uh, it was nice meeting you in New Orleans. Uh, we've met at a conference and have been keeping in touch and um, kind of sharing referrals back and forth on people we know in the industry. So yeah, it's been uh, a good few months knowing you. Yeah, dude, no, it'll be great. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked, man. It's, uh, it's a fun time. Yeah, well, let's just start with your, your background, kind of how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, so I grew up in SoCal, um, grew up, my parents were divorced when I was a little bit younger. My mom remarried to a custom home builder in Laguna Beach, California. The running family joke is he knows more about uh, dolphin and whale migration patterns than he does about building custom homes. Um, so like understanding development in a coastal city was kind of my early stage, but I never thought I was going to do real estate development or just real estate investing. It was just a family business. Long story short, went up to school in Washington State. Uh, fell in love with a girl, did got a degree in international business and finance. Um, girl's dad said, Hey, what are you going to do after school? I was like, Hey, I got a couple offers from, you know, like from Microsoft, Amazon, and a couple other groups up there doing sales or kind of investments. And um, he says, you should come work for me in Las Vegas. And I was like, well, what do you do? He's like, I do commercial real estate. And I was like, well, I don't really know what that is, you know? And he, I was like, but I saw you lived half your life in Hawaii and then you fly around on a private plane occasionally. You kind of work whenever you want. And you just like, it seems like you have a great life. And so he offered me like 800 bucks a week. And uh, I stayed in one of his apartments for free for a year with his daughter. Um, and I studied beneath him. I just kind of shadowed him. He ended up being my real estate mentor. The daughter and I didn't work out, but the father and I did. He's now my partner. Um, he's a third partner in VAC development or VAC development. Um, but he was also an asset class agnostic guy and been doing deals like in Hawaii, Florida, throughout the South, you know, Las Vegas, um, just really like broken construction projects, value add office, like just hard distressed assets, turnarounds for real estate. Right. And, um, I liked it. And so when I first kind of started with him, it was interesting because I didn't know anything about real estate. And so my minimum value proposition to him was I could go and source deals and I started flipping homes with them. 
So we flipped about like 70 homes over four years together. And, you know, everything from your little manufacturer trailer up to your $4 million custom home. And, you know, during that time, I seasoned myself, you know, going to conferences, seminars, like educating myself on commercial real estate, you know, going to networking groups and everything. And that's what I wanted to do long term. You know, the money wasn't as consistent as the flips, but the check sizes were a lot bigger and the sophistication was more towards my palate. And I just kind of found a knack for it. Now, fast forward, BAC Development was formed in Q4 of 2021. Um, I actually turned my birthday dinner um, in December into a business meeting. He's like, all right, we're taking you out to dinner. He's like, who do you want to bring? And I was like, this guy named Devin Sansone. And he's like, nobody else? And I was like, nope, nobody else, just us three. And I pitched him on starting this, basically the company that we did with the flipping business, but commercial real estate. You know, finding distressed assets, we go find the LPs, you know, raise money, go find the deals and do that. Now, only if it were that simple as me talking about starting a commercial real estate investment company, that'd be great. Definitely got smacked in the mouth a couple of times uh, doing my own and raising money and going on this journey. Um, but, you know, we bought our first piece of land in July of 2022 together as a firm. And we actually break ground on that project March 1st. It's five parcels. Um, it's a gas station, a Starbucks, an auto shop, a QSR called Salad and Go, and then about 13,500 feet of like inline reach retail, which is commonly known as a strip center. And a very good Southwest uh, submarket here in Las Vegas. Um, we're really excited about it. Total deals about 18.5 million. Uh, and got a loan for about 15. And then we raised about 3 million. So, you know, it was interesting and, and we'll just build it and we want to hold it. So, again, fast forward today. Uh, again, we are an asset class agnostic firm. I've done office repositioning, industrial development, retail development, retail repositioning, multifamily repositioning, land entitlement, land banking, uh, home flipping, home building. Uh, we bought notes and taken over properties. Like it's, I've done auction deals. It's just kind of like, hey, what's more of the use case and the deal? And can I wrap my head around it? And uh, can I sell it to a bank and can I sell it to an investment group? And so that's kind of where I'm at today. That's a little background. And so so VAC would do really any any product type potentially? I think the only thing I wouldn't necessarily do is a hotel. Um, I haven't done them, but the senior that my real estate mentor has, and it's just you have, you have to really have a strong operator. If I don't have like a strong operating company that solely does these types of hotels, I wouldn't do it. We're like in negotiations with Hyatt to do like 120 key build a suit up in Reno. But at the end of the day, like I would only build it. I need an operator. They need an operator to come and take that over. And it's like we're dealing with corporate. And, um, that's just a fun process in its early stages. When you say operator on a hotel, like more than just hiring Hyatt to manage it, where you would you'd want like a co GP or just someone to buy the site from you and then run it. And then they would be the ones hiring Hyatt or? No, I would still GP the deal on the real estate side, but actually functionally running the hotel. Like in hotel operations, you can hire an operator basically like you would for a multifamily property. You know, like for a multifamily, you might have an in-house leasing team or you might have an apartment manager that actually runs your leasing office, right? It's the same thing for the hotel, except for the hotel, you just have deeper staff because you have somebody cleaning the rooms and cleaning the property all the times where, you know, in apartments, you just have your your porter just cleaning around the property, but these guys, you know, actually have to have a service and, you know, on like those Hyatt's, you know, you have a breakfast concept, so you need like a kitchen staff, but you know, a lot of those staff members wear multiple hats from like the desk check-in. They also do the breakfast, you know, the cleanup setup. 
um, takedowns and everything else like that. So, yeah, but you need like, there's, there's a lot of companies out there and it's more like they take, I think they take like seven to 10%, whereas like a normal opera, like, like a normal property manager for commercial real estate for office, industrial retail, you know, it's, it's really 3% a lot of the times. Is there any upfront fee? On that, I didn't. I didn't know we'd be talking about hotels no. today, but uh, yeah, I've, no. I've, I've, yeah, I know. Hyatt, you know, it's interesting where you see like, wow, how can uh, Hyatt? They're all over the world. They got all these hotels in China and India and all these places, and but then they're primarily they're a management company, so there's an underlying owner. It's an investment for them, and just like how people hire a management company for like a duplex or something, they're doing the same for the hotel. Yeah, we know. We know this gentleman by the name. His name's Gary Tharaldson. My partner has about the better relationship than I do, but he's the largest Marriott developer in the country. He's like the richest guy in South Dakota. Um, but dude, the guy just crushes it, and he's been known as a very just programmatic uh, real estate investor. But yeah, look him up, Gary Tharaldson. A really great background and now he's like he backed like some kid for self-storage and uh that guy's going to be a billionaire just from gary Thorlson just being a single check writer right and that's just more of where i'm like leading is like dude where's the single check writer that you can just programmatically build a business off of let's hear about that yeah why uh why would someone want to go that route I think the biggest thing is a rinse and repeat process. You know, you, you do apartments, you know, I do the asset class agnostic thing. It's a little bit challenging. I think we will do any deal depending on what it is. I'll look at anything, but it's like, where do you set your teeth apart and like your data gathering to set yourself apart from the competition and that ever growing real estate, you know, environment where there's podcasts like these, there's YouTubes, there's seminars, conferences, like, Prop tech has just boomed out like over the last five to 10 years. So data is readily accessible to just the masses where it used to be just a door knocking, you know, bootstrapping kind of data gathering process. And you can kind of set yourself up apart from the competition. I think you got to be able to pick, you know, an asset class to just be able to go and scale and grow and where you can be like, okay, cool. Like it fits within this box. I go after that product type that fits within that box and I can just rinse and repeat the process. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel every single time because I've done that and you can get some really great deals doing that. But at the end of the day, I can't hit a volume of scale where you can really hit a magnitude of wealth that real estate allows you to do. And I think that's just the difference, I'd say. Um, So it's, again, the programmatic thing of like, hey, it's like for me, I got a, I got an equity group that, you know, for if I'm doing a build a suit for a Starbucks and it's under a $2 million equity check, they just write it. And I'm like, hey, here's the yield on cost. Here's what a Starbucks exits at. Are you good to write the check? And they're like, yeah, hey, we're good to write the check. What's the debt? Okay, here's our equity position. Here's the deal. It's simple. It's backed by a credit lease. We're good to write the check. And they'll fund me in like 45 days. And, and how would somebody... And because really what I'm hearing and and I've worked to do the same where it's really where doing that, you're able to reduce a lot of the capital raising time or almost to, to very little where now this could be one phone call and then you can spend more time doing deals. Because I know, um, I mean, sometimes you hear how people are allocating their time and it's like they they spend triple the amount of time on raising the capital than actually doing the deal. I, I That resonates with me. How How are you going about finding these groups? What have you done? What's been successful? What's not been successful? Yeah, I think the syndication doesn't necessarily fit with us a lot of the times. Um, I went out to an equity broker with this one particular group. There's a conference uh, and and group called uh, ICSE. It's like International Community of Service Centers. Um, 
it used to be shopping center. So it's a big retail conference where all the retailers, you know, Starbucks, Circle K's and everybody in the world kind of congregates. And I had an equity broker out of Brooklyn who teed me up to this group on an introduction at the conference. And it just fits like this group specifically does build to suit retail capital under two and a half million. And I was like, cool, that's the group I need for these single projects or like these two to three like net tenant deals. And that's just all they do on a rinse and repeat. So we get paid an equity broker, you know, 3% of the capital committed by that equity group. And they basically will charge you the 3% on the first deal, then one and a half percent on the next two deals. And then they're out. We just hired. uh, So there's one way I've gone about it. It's like a debt and equity broker shop. You know, the other way I've gone about it and recently that we're experimenting with is we hired a director of investor relations whose sole purpose is to go out and find these institutional uh, equity groups or these single writing LPs, these family offices. And I was like, dude, I want you to go find their box because at the end of the day, like in a volatile market, there's and just in real estate in general, there's two ways to do deals, in my opinion, as an operator, Um, besides just finding the deals. I mean, talking about just like funding your deals on the capital raising process. I can either go and find a deal and then go find the equity. I can go find the equity and go chase the deals that fit within that equities box. I used to think like, oh, wow, like, wow, this deal is great. Well, not everybody thinks like Andrew. And so that's the hard part is convincing people to think like me. And I can't do that. And then just again, you're talking about wasted time, wasted energy is I'm convincing these people on metrics on a market that I know and have studied for, you know, years and I'm ingrained in the community, but I'm trying to convince a guy to LA, a guy to Seattle, a guy to New York, Miami, wherever is not a local market investor and trying to convince them on a speculative, like inline retail or speculative anything, or just even where I'm forecasting the rents. And they're like, well, CoStar says this and that center down there, you know, doesn't support these rents. They're 40% below your underwriting assumptions. I was like, one, that's 30-year-old product. Uh, the tenant mix is crap. The parking ratio sucks. You know, the landlord doesn't offer contributions and doesn't forecast properly. Like, so like you're looking at data on a piece of paper, but I know that landlord. I know that you know, those tenants. I know that center. Like, I'm going to have that competitive edge that's competing against somebody. Whereas like, Hey, you know, PIMCO is looking for 7% cash on cash for a retail above 100,000 feet, below 500,000 feet. They hold for five years. They need an equity multiple by X. They want you to put in Y. This is the Walt they'll take on. This is the credit that they need. And this is the types of deals that they do. And I really kind of am starting to shift our platform from, hey, you know, let's just go and do all these different deals to, I really only want to focus on the 25 million and up to get the larger institutional check, you know, above that 10 million, that 10 to 30 million is like that sweet equity check size. And that deal pocket of 25 to 50 million is really where I like to be because you're flying like right under that institutional radar. But on the flip side, I still will do these triple net little build to suit deals because I have an, I, I have my capital stack. I have three debt providers, three to five debt providers, and I have two to three single check writing equity groups that just solely back triple net retail. So it's now just like, okay, rinse and repeat, who's going to give me the best offer? Who's going to move the fastest? Who has the aggressive appetite? I know the deals I yield to X, I sell for Y, they need the spread of Z. And that's how we kind of build this programmatic process that's just allow us to hit this velocity of like, wow, we're actually now starting to really turn and burn uh, some of these deals in 2025 and beyond will be pretty exciting. How is the the director of investor relations? How's how's his comp set up? Yeah, I gave him, and this is where like I'm kind of in between on, but he's has a base. Um, you know, he has like well, like a six figure base, and then he has 
um, a 50 bips on every debt dollar committed to a deal and then 150 bips on every equity dollar committed. So like, but if I go out to, you know, debt shop, it's one to 2% for debt. If I go out to an equity broker, it's two to 3%, you know, and you blend them together. So for him, I says like, and then when I look for somebody, I was like, show me your book. He's like, well, I don't want to take, you know, just you take the names. I was like, cool, bring it into a meeting. And I want to see your book because I am solely hiring you based on your relationships, based on your industry expertise, based on your knowledge of underwriting deals and understanding how to do this. But like, if you don't have a book and you're starting from scratch, like I, it's not going to work for me. You know, we had like that struggle in this hire and, and kind of seeing what's going on. So we'll kind of reevaluate and maybe we didn't study his book correctly. Um, but he's definitely stepped up and, and we'll see kind of how he goes, but that's how I set it up. I'm like, I want the base, but I want you to focus on the fee. Um, cause everybody needs to live. I don't want you figuring out, but that's really kind of where it's at. And he's been doing good and just going literally, I just want people's boxes. And then when I'm looking at a deal that I think fits their box, while I'm in the LOI stages, as I'm doing this right now, I'm chasing a you know big shopping center here. And I was like, hey, I got five groups that I know this fits. It's a 10 to $16 million check, depending on how we capitalize it. 100% occupied, three-year Walt, you know, the cash on cash over a 10 years, like 12%. Um, you know, going in, you're positively leveraged. This is like an institutional deal. And then my partner developed and leased over 700,000 feet since 2004 within a mile of this asset. So it's like, wow, that's a deal that I can take to these shops that then fits their box. And he's kind of proven that up with some of these groups he's teed up. So it helps us again, like be a little bit more aggressive on the LOIs and the underwriting, because I know what their concerns are of the deal. And I can communicate those concerns onto the seller. And then, so if someone wanted to do the same thing, I mean, really the most important piece was this, what pre-existing relationships they have, you felt like? Yeah, I think you, you really have to, if you're even, and this is for people looking at being like an investor relations role, it's who are your relationships? Because I was thinking of like, hey, do I want a syndicator or do I want a guy who has the relationships to the single check writers? And for me, it was the single check writers more or less than the syndication. I think the syndications later on when I have more of a robust pipeline or track record, but I just like the one check writer. I know you can't, I don't want to say take advantage but you can't have as the same like aggressive promote structure as you can with the retail guys. You know, the institutions beat you up. They turn you up. They're sophisticated. They have takeover provision. So your underwriting better be in check. You know, but if I go to 50 people for a deal to fund a deal, like you really think they're going to unanimously come together and, and come at me. Whereas an LP, there's a lot of triggers where they're like, all right, you didn't hit this. You didn't report that. Like, oh, we grabbed that fee. Oh, we grabbed this thing. And you really just are meticulous on that operating agreement um, when you're dealing with these institutions. Yeah, that's very interesting to hear. I, I know a guy who's got an industrial development firm. I don't probably wouldn't want me to say the name, but he he has, I think, three investor relations people and two focus on these bigger check writers. And then his individual investor uh, relations guy. It's interesting if you want to hear where he what his background was. He was actually a uh, someone who worked at at a of, you know, one of these colleges that gives a lot of donations to their endowment and he, where he went to school and he said, if you can sell the name on a door for a million dollars to these people, we'll be able to crush it here. And he, he pulled someone out of that role and he does the essentially for smaller deals and for co GP capital, that's where he goes. And then he has uh, two guys who that when they do the bigger check writers, he made it seem like they didn't have much of a, 
roll the decks, but all they did was they bought the lists from um there's one big list that you can buy. Um it's like twenty grand, but it's got it's all PRE something. I I'll I'll look it up. This isn't yeah. a great tip if I yeah, don't know the curious. list. I, yeah, I but down. they'll and they just called through it in like reverse order from smallest fun to biggest because it's like at the top it's like Blackstone. It's the the prequin, like where they rank the quality of the funds. And really what it is is it's it's for ranking the funds, but they didn't use it for that. They were just like we're just gonna call them all. I got two guys full time. Yeah. Call it all. And then they aren't doing billion dollar deals. So they don't, you know, they're not calling Blackstone first. They're going in the other order. Yeah. Where they're calling funds that have a couple hundred million dollars. And, but yeah, I was like, dang, that is some solid advice. And so now, uh, listen, if they raise those funds, right? Like when they raise that money, they have to deploy it. Or when they go through their fund cycle and they didn't deploy it for deals, like they're done. Like it's good. It's going to be that much harder for them to raise money. And because, you know, those like there's different levels to this game, right? Like I know an industrial developer, very prominent and they like, like they, you know, one of their uh, capital partners is uh, Cal purse, you know, like the largest pension fund yeah. in the country. And so it's like, listen, they're programmatic. They're an institutional industrial developer. Like that's different. Right. Or like these, you know, LPs or these funds or these institutions will go to these various pension funds, endowments, and pitch them like, hey, we're going to deploy this capital, back sponsors, back operators, um, and do it that way. And it's again, you just got to find their box um, because they'll fund you. There's not deals growing on trees that fit their box every single day, especially in this environment. Have you heard of Envoy Net Lease Partners as a lender? I don't think so. That's another group to to check out. Where so Ralph Cram is the guy who started that. He went to UW Madison, like. As, as did I, um, but he's probably 20 years or so older than me. Um, and he, so he's been around the shopping center game for decades. And he essentially what it is for deals like the Starbucks one you're talking about, where you have a pre-signed lease building to a great yield and uh, you can get on some tenants and maybe this has changed and I, I should look at the website, but, but high leverage development loans. If it's backed by a signed lease already where, I mean, on some tenants he was going to, a hundred percent loan to cost. I mean, yeah, it's still on the website. I will tell you that product is still available. Um, you know, like on, I'll tell you right now, we're doing a Starbucks deal that we just kind of got signed and I was just up in Reno yesterday. It's like literally just a Starbucks build the suit and test fit did great and everything. And I had actually met a lender on site. I'm dealing with like probably three lenders and, um, talked to my equity source. He's like, I'm good. Just tell me what the final loan is and tell me what I need to fund. And I was like, Thanks, buddy. And then we don't put any, what's kind of crazy is on that deal, like I'll just walk you through it. Total cap stack pending the debt is going to be probably about like 2.6 million. Hard cost construction is about a little over a million. And then the rest is the soft cost, you know, like developer feed, interest carry, permit, you know, taxes, management, all that stuff. And then where exit is projecting between like three and a quarter and like 3.4 million. Again, my guy, if I get a loan at like 80%, it means like there's going to be an equity check of about 500,000 because of the check size, my guy will just put in the 500. He gets his a pref and then we start our promote like thereafter it ends up shaking about that. Like we're 50, 50 on the deal on the total, like net distributed capital. So, you know, we put no money, we signed a, like a non-recourse completion guarantee and, you know, we'll probably net out for our group, like 350 to 400 grand. Um, we close on the land at the end of April and we should be out in next April you know, it's 12 month turn and burn. And so again, like, wow, are they sexy? And am I making like gobbles of money? No, but am I like making a nice living? Yeah, hundred percent. And you like stack 
up like five or 10 of these and like you just keep going and dude, you're churning and burning one of these like one a quarter, you know, even several a quarter, like that's the honey hole, right? Like just doing one of these isn't sexy, it, but like doing, you know, five or 10 of them at once, they're easily manageable. Like we were joking because we were on this groundbreaking, I was telling you about on that project earlier, we had, because we hire, we outsource all our construction management. I outsource like that, like third party, it really helps for capital and it really helps for lenders as well because like saying oh wow like it's not just you guys doing it it's also you have like a construction management team like for owners rep that like really drills into your drawings really drills in the contractor really drills into your numbers to make sure we're safe so that's what we do to kind of hedge the construction and development risk but he's like funny he's like you make a break on your horizontals but any monkey can build this like starbucks retail stuff this is like wood frame construction like among he literally said monkey and I was like, sounds great. I mean, like when you think about it, there's 17,800 something Starbucks in America right now. So it's not like this is a unique product. Like I'm building a hundred story high rise in Brickle and Florida. And on the Starbucks, just to set back, you're all in for like two and a half and looking at it would be a sale for like three and a half. Uh, like low, like I'll call it three and a quarter. You know, that's like the big thing is where you're able to like negotiate what we've been able to do and negotiate with some of these retail tenants who want to play ball is I have three different brokers that I reach out to and I got a broker in Orange County, a broker here in Nevada, and then like a national like net lease, like SRS guy. And I always ask them, I was like, Hey, I'm trying to sign a deal with Starbucks. Where do I need to be? What do I need to focus on in my lease? So it's like, Hey, like, you know, Starbucks, you know, doesn't really do absolute triple net. They do what is like basically a double and a half net because they don't take over the roof. And sometimes they have like insurance covenants um, just because they don't have that infrastructure in their operations. You know, a lot of it's been like pushing up the supply of Starbucks in the, in the market. I think there's like 170, 180 across the nation. It's like, you've seen some serious cap rate expansion in tertiary markets and you really got to focus on the supply. So like when I look at the underwriting, because remember, I'm going for the spread. You know, we really try to target that 6.75 to 7% yield on cost. And, you know, you sell like sub five. Um, but now there's you're not selling a Starbucks sub five. If it was, you know, 2022, I was selling these things at like four and a half, four point seven five caps. You know, this deal, I'm underwriting a five to a five and a quarter. So I got like that 175, 100 and, you know, 175 to 200 bips of spread depending, you know, on how much I want to debt load the property, right? Like if I do hundred percent loan to cost financing, you know, 12%, two points, like, all right, my yield on cost is going to go to like a six and a quarter or six, three, I got hundred bits of spread, but I keep all the profit, you know, and it's just like, you know, take your pick and you know, I might make an extra hundred grand than doing my capital partner where I'm 80%, you know, still 10 to 12%, two points. Um, it's still the same. It's just the leverage you want to go up in the stack and uh, do it that way. So, that's like you have to be very like prominent on your risk. Like I know every Starbucks kind of on the market. I don't know them like by hand off the top of my head. I have a data sheet that I kind of look. And so when you know a lender challenges my exit or my equity partner challenges my exit, I was like, here's these three broker opinions, and here's their value, and here's their backup for work, and here's why they're coming up to their number. And I do that before I sign my lease. And then they'll also tell me like the pros and cons of a Starbucks or a Circuit, whatever the retail tenant is. And like what I really need to focus on the lease, because the difference in like my people think it's just like, just because I have a lease with this tenant, it's going to yield me a cap rate. No, it's what's the dollar amount in the rent, you know, because what people don't know is 50% of retail trades that occurred last year were under $3 million. So it was a huge 1031 market. So it's like when I go above that 3 million, 
I, dude, I'm losing buyers left and right um, because I don't have that contractor. I don't have that, you know, family or whatever small business owner who sold their business, sold their house. And I'm like, well, I want just some cash flow, but I don't want a single family rental. I don't want apartments. Like I just want a coupon clipper, you know, buy whatever retail triple net deal. And it's like, they don't, they, they just want to take the mailbox money. But for this, like that's where the Starbucks have been having issues. Like if I have a triple net Starbucks lease uh, and it's a 10 year versus a 15 year, you know, depending on the rent and depending on the bumps as well, because they only do 10% every five years, it's not a compounding annual increases, you know, that's the difference in 50 bips of spread, you know, and then when you add it up, like that's a hundred grand, that's 200 grand on my deal. And like, you know, my and returns to my investors get shot and my deal is at risk. My deal sits on the market, screws with my hold period because these construction loans are, you know, 12 to 15 months terms. These aren't three years, like full IO, you know, these are very short term loans. And that's where they, cause they just know what these things do. And it's a commodity at the end of the day. I think these are commodities in my opinion. So they have all these set things that you, you did figure out like these, they're not negotiable on these points. They weren't negotiable on how the triple nets are going to work, the pastors and then how, um, when the bumps are in the rent and then the lease term, they just do as a Starbucks do every lease, essentially the same length or that's where they're negotiable or. So they have like a clause where it's like a dark bailout clause. And it's like, if they aren't hitting a certain number on the store, they can just drop. And they can, and so it's like it's kind of like a ten year lease, but dude, they could bail after year four if they wanted to, and you're screwed. You got to get them. People like the ten years are great, but the fifteen years are really have like probably a twenty five to fifty bit compression over a ten year lease. And it's really hard to get them to fifteen, but they're realizing that if they want, they're going to lose on sites to the you know lower tier credit or their competitor, which is like Dunkin' or Dutch, right? Because they're like, yeah, we'll sign a 15 year lease just to beat out Starbucks and control market share of the coffee market and like their local region. Like they'll do it all day long. Yeah. But it makes a difference. It does. And why would, uh, why, why does it make a difference? I think we haven't had a lot of retail podcasts. So this is great. And I used to work at a retail developer. I bought a bunch of retail properties. So I got, um, nice. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're getting into this because it hasn't really, came up too often or at all, but why would the lease term be so important in terms of the cap rate? So it's just for somebody that kind of how we were talking about that 1031 buyer who doesn't want to think about anything. They don't want to go to work. They, you know, they, they just want to like, I've never understood because, you know, I'm in wealth building mode. I'm in wealth creation mode. I'm in, you know, stacking my resume and everything like that. Like I'm like how these single net lease guys look at deals. Like one, they look at the underlying collateral. Right. Like, okay, what's if it's a ground lease, like what is my you know, 2,400 square foot building on it um, or not? And that's why these gas stations are so like get usually are always in the fours because the collateral is so great on these ground leases. Right. But when you talk about the term, it's really just somebody to not have to care about the asset, but still get the income. And so if I don't have to care for 10 years, great. If I don't have to care for 20 years, like even better. You know, and it's like, I think for these generational single net lease buyers like that, hey, like, you know, I'm, one day I'm going to hopefully be a grandfather and, you know, you're a dad, but it's like, you know, how do you instill like that wealth preservation in your family or in your company? You know, I think having the longer lease term helps, right? Because like, hey, you're never selling this, you know, and you got money for 20 years or it's like, I'll buy a Starbucks triple net in your name that goes in your college fund from the time you're born, you know, for 18 years. And so like the, it's really just about the security of the term and not having to think about it. 
and that people put a lot of weight on that. You know, people don't want to actively manage. You know, you, I know you're an operator. I'm an operator. Like you wake up every day and you got to go to work. Yeah, there's you know, stuff to do. These guys just write you the check and they think <clears> it just magically happens. And I'm like, oh, that'd be nice. You know, I obsess over these things. I wake up thinking about work, go to bed thinking about work. You know, I have times to check off. But at the end of the day, like it's an active management process. And I think people are just looking for those passive income tools, right? Yeah, what we all do. Why, why we all, I know I see your posts on LinkedIn. It's, you know, cultivating that passive income to our limited partners and our investors. And, you know, we make our yield and we get our promote, but it, those people look for just the coupon clipper mailbox money check. And the longer the term, the better it is. Do you view these triple net deals as that that's safe where you're describing them as such a, a thing of safety? I'd be curious what your thoughts are uh, as the as the developer. Uh, to me, to me, it is the guarantor, the lease and the underlying collateral. And when you look at a cap rate, I, you know, I did a, I did a little white paper on like what actually influences a cap rate. It's credit is number one. Credit is number one in a cap rate valuation, right? Okay. So credit's number one. Then I go to term, you know, like Walt, right? Like in commercial real estate, we always talk about Walt. What's my weighted average lease term. And, you know, for a REIT or an institution, that's, you know, just giving coupon clips day one, they look for a five plus year wall typically. Okay, what's my collateral? You know, okay, so if it's a ground lease and say, all right, I got a ground lease and, you know, the land, if it was just raw dirt is a million bucks. Okay, but the collateral on top of it is five million. Well, dude, I'm going to find some way to capture the value of that five million by me controlling the dirt. So, okay, the collateral also helps. So if it's just like, you know, these like where, where drive throughs and QSRs and retail is going, they're going for the micro restaurant concept where it's, dude, sometimes under a thousand feet, like that QSR uh, salad concept I was talking about in this development that we're doing, they're 870 square feet is their restaurant footprint. But they will, but they all these companies are focusing on stacking the cars. So it's not as much the collateral is great anymore. You're now banking on the credit of the tenant and the success of the business. Okay. So then that's the next part of like, actually like those guys are doing like the double stack, like 30 cars. Like I just got an LOI from Chick-fil-A on a site where they're asking for 40 cars stacking. And I'm like, 40 cars. Are you kidding me? Like, dude, like that's insane. Like, okay. So like, all right, we're doing a 2,400 square foot footprint. Like nobody's eating in anymore. Everybody's doing the drive through. They want convenience, 40 cars stacking. I'm like, okay, this is going to suck for a traffic study. Okay. So then we go there. Okay, so then now it's the underlying collateral. And then then I go to what does the store project to do? So like what's what's the sales of the store? Because it's like, right, like you want to bet on a business that can pay your rent. You know, the typical figure for like rent in like re- retail is like 10%. You want like 10%, right? Like whereas it's funny in apartments, it's like in suburban, I know the metric, it's four to one. So if somebody's making 100 grand a year, they can spend $25,000 a year on on living expenses. You know, for these businesses, like you want to see like a good retailer is doing like these like QSRs, right? They're doing about 3 million a store. If they're doing 3 million a store, like dude, 175 grand a year, 200 grand a year is buckus. Chick-fil-A's are doing like four and a half million. Like they just kill the competition. And so you got to understand, like, like I was having this conversation yesterday when I was up in Reno, I was looking at a development site and I was with the tenant rep broker and I was like, Hey, Starbucks is here. Like I got a couple other pads, like what tenants you got? And that's like, dude, that Starbucks sucks. They're only doing 2 million a year. Like that's a mid block. Like they won't, 
bail out of the location, but it's not like they're going to, when on the lease renewal, they're not going to sign the market rent. They're going to beat you down and you might lose the rent that you had. So say maybe they're paying like a hundred grand a year because the lease was signed, you know, 20 years ago and the lease is coming up for renewal. Like they might be like, Hey, this store sucks. Like, and it's an older space. Like we're going to charge 80 grand. Okay. So the deal that you were just collecting hundred grand on a year is now 20% less and you got to pay leasing commissions on it because a tenant rep broker is going to do that. Like you didn't put in the reserves, right? Like you're screwed. And so there's all these different metrics on kind of what I value in a lease and how I sell a lease. And I think it's what people are just like, oh, cap rate, rate of return. And I'm like, no, it's definitely not what the cap rate is and the rate of return. But it's understanding how that valuation comes about. And I think a retail is just a data-driven game. You know, it's very replicable, right? Like we talked about earlier, there's over 17-something thousand Starbucks in America, over like 35,000 worldwide. You know, it's a very repetitive like process. It's easy for the common investor to understand that doesn't eat, breathe, live, and sleep this stuff every single day of their lives like operators do. And even some operators don't even understand the underlying metrics. But, you know, as a younger operator, you got to figure out a way to compete and set yourself apart to get the money. And this is what we do. It's not just like, oh, yield on cost, exit cap. It's not how this works. There's a lot of underlying data that makes sense in how I sell these things and look at them. Yeah, there's so many good good tips in here and hard to pick where to where to go next, what to ask you. I think just to make sure everybody knows, let's let's have you explain yield on cost, where I think that's came up plenty of times on other episodes, but you'd be totally lost right now if you didn't know that term. So Yeah, so let's let's talk about yield on cost. So let's, you know, that Starbucks that we we're kind of talking about. I'm not gonna use when I describe metrics, I use simple math. Yield on cost is basically my net operating income, you know, divided by my total cost of my project. So my land, my hard costs, my soft costs, you know, my financing costs, like everything lumped in to that based on the NOI or like the net effective rent. Say I was building that Starbucks in Reno for $100 and, you know, they gave me $7 annually in rent. Um, that's net effective to me, right? And NOI, because like all the net leases and you know, all that stuff in the past years and whatnot. But, uh, so $7 net a year in rent, my total project costs 100 my yield on cost is a 7%. And that's it. Yeah, and then if you just to play out the prior examples, and then if you can sell it at a 5 cap, that's you're selling it at a 5% yeah. yield, uh, 7 divided by 0. 0.05 is 140 so then you'd make 40 dollars yep. at you know net, you got to net out the fees obviously it's not it's in the yep. home and garden channel where there's no broker cost or anything on the <laughs> <No>. deals <laughs> but um, no but that's exactly it and then and that's the spread and then i learned when you talk about development spread it's that you know yields at seven dollars and say i sell it in five and a quarter my spread is that differential between those two numbers 175 bips basis points right um or 1.75 percent for people out there. Yeah. So then when you were talking to go back to when you're talking about how you could, there's a hundred percent financing option, but then, the, and then also you could take on an equity investor and right. But if you're paying way more interest, cause you're borrowing more, the rates higher, it's higher risk, you know, then, then your cost is going up. So your total profits less and you're taking on way more risk. So then yep. you can see how Andrew comes to the conclusion where it's actually better, where I would take on this partner, my costs will yep. be lower. It's less risky. Yeah, I'm splitting the profits, but less risk, lower costs. Like, you know, that that makes a lot of sense to me. No, 100%. We, we, you got to constantly evaluate it. Like in a growing market, like right where you're seeing the trend of cap rate compression, I'd be more in favor of, you know, doing that 100% financing product out there. 
But in a rate in an environment like where we're in today, where you don't know when interest rates are going to come back down, you don't know if they're going to continue going up, you don't know if they're going to stay where they're at, right? Like we can all make these bets, we can all make these like inferences, but like nobody knows. Like nobody knows World War Three can happen, you know that stuff in Israel or you know stuff in Taiwan, you know geopolitical warfare, supply chains, whatever it is, and then also the amount of capital, transaction volume, and everything. So if I'm seeing like cap rates like do like kind of like expanding a little bit like even in a very tight product given market like reno where there's just not a lot of product available but the market's still growing it's tight it's highly uh topographical so it's just mountaintops everywhere and so you're not really getting a lot of like core development whereas like maybe if i'm in phoenix like dude that shit that stuff just spreads out you know and i could have like five to seven starbucks competing against each other whereas i'm in reno i might only be competing against one if not none and so i like being in those markets right so you know if i'm seeing like where cap rates are like hey like you know starbucks used to trade at four and a half 12 months ago now they're at like five like going to five and a half i'm like dude lower the leverage like even maybe from 80 down to 65 like screw it um let's play it safe versus if i'm seeing like hey like oh no interest rates are going down transaction volumes going up compression is occurring for these assets they're being just gobbled up by all these 1031 guys like no give me the 100 percent loan to value product because i know i originally was thinking it was gonna be five and a quarter when i signed this lease but i'm about to be a close like lever it up like let's go for the 100 percent because we're gonna hit it big i don't want to share it you know and then, and then it's, it's like a funny thing right like i think a lot of people have this greed um, between them, right? Of like, oh, it's my money. Oh, it's my money. Well, it's like, okay, well, it's always your money. Like, how do you ever get people to invest with you? You know, like, how do you got, you got to split the pie, right? And I think it's like this common thing as an operator where it's like, what do the investors really need? Like 20%, 15%, 25%. Okay, I'm going to set my promote my waterfall to basically kind of say, they're going to cap out at that and I'm going to take the rest. You know, they got their 20%. You know, they're happy. Whereas like, you know, on a basic, simple or, or simpler promote structure, like, all right, cool, they're making 30, you know, because we all hit big. But it's like, I think like when you see people hit those 3% returns, like you deal with this in apartments, like obviously it's been a little like choppy recently, but you know, like the past five years, like, you know, two to five years, you guys were just cranking and your return expectations were exceeding like what you're underwriting and what you're pitching to your investors and your investors are like 25% yields, like dang, like 30, like, whoa. And you're, and then now it's like, Hey, we're now back to reality. And we're like high teens. And they're like, Oh, why would I invest in that? Like it's high teens. It's like, are you kidding me? Like you're, you're giving me money and you can't beat this in the stock market. You don't get the tax incentives that I give you, but it's like, this is reality. And the investors just think it's just high living and every deal is 25%. Oh, Drew's going to pitch me a deal. He's going to show me, he's going to give me 20, but you know, and then I got 25, but it's like, when Drew shows you, you got 20 and he pitches you 20, you got 20, you're kind of like bumped. And it's this weird like investor psychology. And you're kind of like, as an operator, you're like, I just got this guy 20% of your honest money. And he's mad at me. I screwed this guy. Yeah, I haven't had anybody who's made that that kind of return and mad yet. I, I know what you're I know what you're saying, where yeah, people have gotten spoiled with the returns where yeah, you look at some of these, especially the folks that were in the Sun Belt, and we we never were able to take advantage of this. But like, yeah, if you were buying apartments in like Texas or Florida or wherever in 2020, 
and then you were selling them in a year or two. I mean, yeah, you got your investors used to doubling their money every year. Yeah, it's going to be a rude awakening when you're like, yeah, this deal makes 15%. And then, you know, and they'll be like, oh, that's that's so low. That's, that's like that's like what a lender should yeah. make maybe here. <laughs> You know, yeah, but exactly. Yeah, we never. Yeah, we we've always our strategy so far have been where we were buying properties to just hold for forever, basically. And we were basically projecting when we would refinance out all the equity. That was what we mostly did. And then anything that we had projected a return on, we've just always been targeting 15 percent. IRR. So it's always been kind of around there. And then, yeah, I think all the deals we've sold, we've exceeded that sometimes by 1% and delivering a 16, sometimes by 30%. And I think our best deal is a 45 IRR. And usually though we're selling because it's like it's a smaller deal. It doesn't make yeah. as much sense right now. It's like feels like it's topped out. Like we're we're very long uh, term holders and sort of that's um, I love that. we make that clear. Yeah. To your point on building wealth where, yeah, some people do it with a Starbucks and trying to snag one with the 15 year lease. And then we're going, why not do something similar, but with a multifamily deal? And yeah, I'd asked you about how safe you feel some of these single tenant deals are. Because so I have five or six, I'd have to count retail deals that I'm an owner in. And I still do the yeah. lease renewals and in any negotiating on new leases, if we have a tenant, it's, it's interesting because a lot of these, especially high profile tenants like a Starbucks or I haven't dealt with any uh, owning a Chick-fil-A, but their rents, yeah. can, they, they can pay a good number to get the end cap, to get that, get that site on the corner. Yeah. And then, you know, shopping patterns change and maybe the best location yes. around there 20 years ago, it's not there anymore. And you're actually going backwards in rent potentially, not, not usually, but it's, it's much more likely in that kind of, in these commercial deals where, yeah, you were by the corner that was good, but then they put a stoplight actually at the other corner of the shopping center. And now you're out positioned greatly. And they, they don't even, to your point, sometimes these costs that are involved, if your health ratio is 10% and you're paying 10% of the of your revenue and rent, they would be willing to pay 50% more, 100% more to get to the right corner. They're still only paying 15 or 20% and their sales yep. will go up and maybe they're back at 10 um, on the new revenue numbers. So it's interesting if the t retailer doesn't want to be there, they it's like there's no, you can't just save it with cost where, you know. Nope. Uh, in some product types you can, you know, but if, um, yeah. you know, maybe on like an office tenant, you just cut them a sweet enough deal and they're not going to move, but you know, they retail, the location is critical. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, we've literally have signed deals with retail tenants where they were down the street, but exactly what you said, like, you know, a competitor came in down the street or like or across the street or they, um, you know, where a traffic light came in or, you know, a new development came in that redirected traffic. And it's like, I think then the other thing I didn't like talk about and like the influence of a retail cap rate, like what really drives value is that population and that demographic, right? So if like you're a known, okay, like we population, you know, stagnant, but the demographics are above a hundred thousand, you know, annual household income, like they're going to be like, okay, no, we're safe, you know, and it's going to continue to grow because that market's growing, you know, that housing market's growing. Like, I think that's what a lot of people don't think is like, okay, like, you know, as an, as a housing investor, like yourself, you know, on the multifamily side, it's like, you look like, Hey, like the population's growing. So my rents are going to go up in this corridor because I'm around like this business district, or I'm just like in that pocket where I can forecast opportunistic rents. Right. I think a lot of people don't think, and this is where I will go and like why I am really bullish on retail right now is retail's just gotten pummeled the last five to 10 years because, you know, like the brick and mortar shifted, you know, online e-commerce with Amazon and these online retailers going direct to the consumer. And it's like, I still, like, you can't order a burger. Like, I don't, I don't believe in the DoorDash's new breed concept. It's too expensive, you know, and as consumer spending and credit, like kind of weakens, 
you got to like think like, dude, people are not spending $10 extra for a freaking coffee or a burger. They're going to go drive there. They want it fresh. Like, you know, the DoorDash guy eats some of their fries, like whatever it is, like people just get bad instances, right? Because these are gig people, not, you know, actual employees guided by a handbook. And I think people are just like, hey, like I want to go. I want the convenience of it. But and also all these retailers now are so focused on the apps themselves and they're giving so many rewards like, hey, you know, like your 10th Chipotle burrito is free. Like and, and like, hey, I want to go do that. Like rather than ordering through the app, I can't get my rewards. And so I think that's a great way for these guys to kind of combat that. But you got to look at the national kind of statistics. I'm a very like kind of data driven guy. And uh, when you look at single net vacancy in the entire U.S. market, single net vacancy for retail is at 2.5%. Multi-tenant retail vacancy is at 4.5% right now. And so retail was heavily underbuilt the last, I mean, 10 years because you couldn't, you know, they overbuilt it, you know, with all the malls and everything and the big boxes like scared away lenders and everybody. But the model in retail has really shifted towards these like standalone, you know, single net leases, and that's the attraction behind all these retailers just dominating corners, dominating locations. You're, I, I think retail personally is where Flex Industrial was five to seven years ago, underbuilt, but the rents weren't being pushed yet. The tenants dominated the rents. Well, now locations are fixed. They're finite. You can't make any more land. I can't build a Starbucks on top of a Dutch Brothers where it's now a convenience thing. They need to control locations and you're able to force people because there's so many new concepts coming out every year. Uh, just competing for location. Just when you look at these deals, you, you got to see what actually drives retail. So if you think population's growing, you think housing's growing, you think jobs are being created, you think wealth is growing, you know, annual household income's driving up, then you better believe in retail because those people are going to have to eat somewhere. Those people are going to have to get their nails done somewhere. Those people are going to have to get their hair done somewhere. You know, they're going to have to, you know, maybe massages, you know, it's a luxury commodity, but like dentistry and everything else like that, like, they have to go to these places and they aren't just building houses to go live in them, you know, and they need those services to support the housing. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people also overlook in retail as well. And they just focus on population growth uh, for the housing side of things. The vacancy stats that you gave, that is for all retail or only small shop or what What was that for? National multi-tenant vacancy. Yeah, no, multi-tenant vacancy is all retail. It's four and a half percent. That was done by a CoStar report. That was done by the National Co-Star Report for 2023. Wow, I'd really be that would really be interesting to see if they could break that down to just small shop. Let's say spaces under 3,000 square feet, like that would be. Oh, dude, I I'd say that product type is near zero vacancy. Obviously, when I say near zero, like I think it's just turnover or just getting out positioned. I mean, when I think of like yep. the the deals that have more than one vacancy, like to turn over to your point, it was built sort of maybe next to the big box lineup. Then they started building the developing out lots. Now it's just, it's, it's tough to, to win tenants because again, price is only one of the considerations and then you're and then yeah it depends on the area maybe you're in an area where you can fill that up with some more kind of neighborhood type stuff like a swim school or things where you don't need to be on the corner yep. um mm-hmm. auto zone or you know something but like that's you know that not, can't support that everywhere no not at all that's that's interesting no, that's m- much less vacancy than i would have thought um considering yeah. the malls are included and those are still not where to be no I and mean, it's interesting because you're seeing well it's funny because those the malls are being taken off the market because they're being bought by these redevelopment groups that are just scrapping the malls like they're they're slowly like hey no we're out like we're going through our entitlements we're scrapping the mall and we're doing that you know work eat live, live play concept because these malls had these you know low coverage areas and these department stores and just 
when you look at an aerial of some of these mega malls, you know, I'm talking like these 500,000 feet to million square foot malls, like you just see it's like an island surrounded by parking. And you're like, okay, that is a lot of unused land. And, you know, some people have done the value add concept of where they just, you know, do the out parcel pads for the retail. But I think you're going to just see as these malls like really age out, like they're either going to need a lot of CapEx to get them up and going. And it's like, what's driving people to walk into a mall and like, you know, walk in the stores. What's really hitting trend, and there's a project on the strip in Las Vegas that's proving up this thesis, is the outdoor mall concept, the walk-up strip center. And doing even multi-level strip centers, but it's outdoor access. People don't want to go inside anymore. It's weird. And like I say that because I primarily focus in the Southwest and Mountain West. I'm not in Chicago where, you know, it can get to negative 60 degrees with wind chill. You know, like that might be a little bit different in those types of markets, right? Where people are like, no, I'd like to go inside. You know, I don't want to walk outside going store to store, right? So I take that from my perspective. Yeah, I think it's it's just, again, where are you at? Like, what's the driver behind it? And, um, you know, I have the same thesis for office. Like, if it's one or two-story office, like, I'm still bullish on it. You know, and it's a, if they're under 5,000 feet, no tenant wastes more than 10% on your rent roll, and you're just churning and burning space, painting carpet, you're not doing full-spec space plans. So you're giving rent deals basically as like a used car lot. You know, that's how I'd run office today. I'm running it as a used car lot. I'm like, what do you need? How much free rent? Jay, can you do this TI? I'll lower your rent. I'll amortize your lease into this. I'll do that. How long are you saying? Five years, three years? Okay, boom, 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 boom. All right, next, you're good. And you just get them in there. You know, and it's like, I think that's where offices just take a beating is like these build outs have been so specialized that you can't release it, release it. You can't predict, you know, turnover costs like for multifamily. Like, you know, I know insurance has been the biggest deal in your guys' market and, you know, the renovation cost per door on the value add has gone up, but you know, you're, Turnover costs is the paint and carpet and whatever leasing costs to get that deal and get that tenant in there. But same thing with industrial. It's like, what am I doing? Five bucks a foot? Okay, great. Whereas office, like maybe as low as 15 and as high as 100, you know, in contributions. Like, how can you forecast that in the model? How can you tell? And it's like, for us, like if we're doing office right now, and I go back to your original point in the introduction where I'm asset class agnostic, I'm like, I'm looking at these office deals and I'm like, I'll, I'll do this if I'm doing a yield on cost to a 12. If I'm doing like low teens yield on cost, give me office. And with like a 10 to 20% vacancy factor, that yield on cost, let's go. And I will just, because I, and, I, and I'm hitting below market rents before everybody and I'm the underdog and I'm just giving deals and I'll do it. You know, and that's where you're seeing these deals set 10 caps and everything. And you got to look at them kind of how you look at them, where it's either covered land plays over the long term. Or they're just infinite hold periods that you can consistently turn and burn, but you don't have the credit. Like I'm not looking at credit office deals. I am looking at cash flow and just consistent cash flow. And again, no tenant weighs over 10% of my rent roll. However, no tenant weighs over 5% of my rent roll in office right now. Retail, different story. Um, same thing with industrial, different story. Love it. And the way the way office is valued is almost fundamentally when you think of a hundred dollars a foot as potentially what you need to throw in, you have over half of your rent going back into the property on these uh, on a weighted average, either across the renewals yeah. or new leases and vacancy and free rent and concessions and commissions and build outs, but yet all that's below yeah. the NOI. And this may go over yeah. a lot of unless you're really valuing these, it's gonna be hard to follow. But and it's it's interesting where take your 13 yield on costs and move all those costs above the NOI and then see what it is. I did that and I was like, why would I ever 
do office what? i did buy one deal and it was like a hot potato kind of deal buy it yeah you know trade out a tenant fill it up again and then move it and then we sold it for 20 percent more than we paid so like that you can make money playing a hot potato game but it was you know when you look at it you're like wow if you put that above the line on the noi it's like this is like a four cap no completely and i again everything goes in in waves right like retails you know ripping ripping right now but again last 10 years it wasn't really ripping you know, same thing with industrial, like industrial 20 years ago, like, you know, those were eight, 10 cap deals. And then like, now we're getting into the threes for some of these like threes and fours. Right. And it's like, same thing with apartments, you know, apartments used to be like 10 caps on the buys. Right. And now they were in the fours and fives. Like, so I guess like everything goes through is it cycles. Right. And I think office, it's just what product is it? Where am I? And what's the, what's the investment thesis? Same thing with industrial. Like, you know, we've oversupplied big box in the national market. You know, are we really going to fill up all this big box? Like, or were people just doing position grabs, right? I think the biggest thing was when I saw Amazon sublease 30 million feet, you know, last year. And it's like, oh boy. Okay. That's kind of scary. Things are frothy. If the building is worth more vacant than leased. Yeah. So what is up with that? And it's like, I think a lot of people, like, especially in just commercial real estate investment, they don't understand because this doesn't happen in housing is, is the sublease. It's like, oh, yeah, the vacancy is 4%. And I'm like, what's the sublease vacancy? Oh, it's 10. And I'm like, no, 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 that is not a true vacancy. And that is a bad sign. So it's like, I look at that as well. It's like, so when you look at retail, like in some of these things, like you don't see sublease, like in the markets that I'm dealing, like I don't see a lot of sublease, right? And I'm like, okay, well, if I don't see sublease, like that's a healthy market, you know? And so again, that's why I think people on the like real estate standpoint, they just look at the overall vacancy but they don't look at the sublease vacancy that actually affects you know your overall risk and the health of the market well great andrew let's leave it there i mean this is one of my favorite episodes it's good to um talk about a new product type and and everything i'd, I'd love to have you back actually it's interesting i had planned on talking to you about how to start Industrial. a company and we never even got to it um i'd love to have you back and we just do that where because you've yeah. built it up you're hiring and that was interesting here and how you brought on the investor relations guy so let's let's do that uh in the near future i'm sure people would love to hear love to hear that if their interest got peaked like mine did no again i like talking to you i remember when we even met at the conference we were like all right we think alike i was like, yeah. I like this i like this a lot <laughs> yeah so right like, no yeah thanks. it's been yeah it's been great getting to know you yeah how do people get in touch with you let's say they want to invest or buy a starbucks directly yeah. before how do they do it yeah go for <laughs> it man um you again twitter there's a great real estate community on twitter x whatever you, you call it now and and so for me like my twitter handle is andrew m dunn underscore um please shoot me a dm shoot me a comment on a tweet i'm always kind of on there i'm active every day uh that's probably my favorite platform hit me up on linkedin andrew i'm done you'll see me redheaded guy uh in a suit uh kind of my profile pic and uh those are probably the two best things uh social media wise man yeah shoot me dm man that's, that's the world we live in today and i think it's a great way to follow me see what i'm talking about and i talk about these deals actively as well um and feel free to just shoot me a question and i'll talk about it it's fun i like it great yeah, we'll put that all in the episode notes and then uh, also the website for your company if you want to head there. Yep. So, all right. Thanks, Andrew. 
If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.